Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Wagner Santana. Based in Yorktown Heights, New York, Wagner is a research scientist, certified data scientist, and master inventor at IBM Research. He has been developing software professionally for over two decades and is an expert in human-computer interaction with a PhD in computer science from Unicamp in Brazil. You can follow him on Twitter at Santana Wagner and check out his website at plasticdesign.eti.br. Along with Unicamp professor Maria Baronowskis, Wagner is co-author of the LeanPub book, Interaction Data Analytics, Methods, Tools, and Applications. In the book, Wagner and his co-author present methods, tools, and applications you can use to understand and uncover the value of interaction data when people interact with computing systems going beyond just measuring clicks. In this interview, we're going to talk about Wagner's background and career, professional interests, uh, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience using LeanPub and self-publishing. So thank you very much, Wagner, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thanks for having me. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in computers and human-computer interaction. Sure. Uh, well, I'm Brazilian, so I grew up in a, a small city in the state of São Paulo, close to the uh, the capital of the state, which is also São Paulo. Um, well, I first got interested on, on computers because uh, my brother, my old brother, uh, he is. Uh, uh, he did his undergrad in computer science as well, and he started working uh, uh, really early with uh, uh, programming languages. So I believe that first time I saw a computer uh, uh, was like mid nineties. Uh, I did a couple of courses on DOS operating systems back then, and and I. Uh, um, and a few times I saw like uh, uh, my brother working on, on his notebook and I got interested in uh, when I started like learning in the technical, uh, uh, more technical courses, just trying to understand how things worked and, and uh, trying to make sense of programming languages, flow charts that I, I was used to, to see uh, back then. Uh, uh, and, and when I was uh, living with my mom and my bro old brother uh, uh, at that time. And then, well, I I noticed that I always had this, um, always liked to uh, uh, interact with um, uh, like math and, and uh, the other more uh, exact disciplines, right? And, and um, when I started for the first time, I, I was able to do some uh, courses on, on programming languages and so uh, also early 2000, early <laughs> mid 90s as well. And, and then I started, I got this opportunity of working um, in the newspapers, a newspaper I worked uh, called Folha de São Paulo. And at that time was only uh, editing by uh, pictures. <laughs> At that time was early, uh, let's say, early age of the web, especially in Brazil at least. And uh, I started working there, uh, uh, just doing some HTML and, and uh, like cutting and treating some some photos for the newspapers. And then uh, things got serious. Like I started doing lots of uh, courses on programming languages and. Uh, like one year later, I was working as a, that time we call like webmaster. <laughs> Nowadays would be like the full stack developer or something. Uh, and um, 
And then that's it. I, I started uh, uh, working as a webmaster there. And then soon after, I just joined, uh, uh, started uh, college, which is, I did in Sao Paulo as well, uh, in a university called uh, Presbyterian University, uh, uh, Mackenzie. And then I, I just uh, didn't stop, right? I, I, I continues, uh, continue studying um, and did my master at Unicamp and PhD. Uh, and after that, I joined IBM, IBM Research, where I am. I, I've been at IBM for um, almost 10 years now. Um, for nine years, I was based in Sao Paulo. And then uh, this year, I came to um, Yorktown Heights uh, working uh, uh, in a specific project for, for the next years. So um, I think in a short way, <laughs> that's how I started uh, um, I got into, uh, uh, interested on on computing, and uh, well, to we mention also about HCI. I think that I started uh, uh, to get more sense of HCI, especially uh, like early two uh, thousands. I started trying to to get a sense, especially when I was working at this newspaper. It was like at the time the one of the most uh, viewed newspapers in Brazil. Um, and it, it, at that time they had a really good audience. So I started to, um, be concerned about how people would access to try to make things always as easy as possible. Um, Brazil is, is, uh, um, well, it's a developing country, so it has the same challenges concerning um, social, uh, economical challenges we see in almost all developing countries. So I, at that time, I was worried about doing the right thing and trying to reach more people. So I started studying usability, accessibility, and then I got interested on on, on these um, aspects more connected to HCI that at, a, at that time, I didn't even know that <laughs> the, the name of this uh, branch of computer science. And then when I uh, was finishing my, my undergrad, I did what they call their, uh, the, this project uh, uh, for, for the, the, the graduation. And um, I started studying uh, more about the, the um, theoretical references behind HCI and how uh, uh, we can like uh, see guidelines helping people to how to make uh, uh, to creating more usable user interface. So, and well, after that, I got interested in in reading some stuff and. Uh, started publishing my first academic papers just uh, at the end of the undergraduation. Got interested in pursuing my master and PhD degrees. Um, and then after reading about uh, different uh, um, stuff, and I got super interested in this aspect of analytics uh, because I had this uh, feeling of, of how we can get data, especially coming from the, the this experience in the newspaper um, I mentioned before, where uh, it is possible to understand how people use this kind of system at scale, just analyzing how people interact with data, like analyzing logs. So I got really interested about this kind of data set at the time. And then um, when I was pursuing my master's uh, degree, I tried to kind of combine some of the, of the things that, that I got interested in, like 
what if I get this kind of data, but a more nuanced kind of data or a more detailed in uh, about more details about interaction, but having in mind like accessibility and usability, what can be done? Because at that time I was already feeling that, okay, nowadays we only analyze clicks, but what happens between clicks is kind of interesting. <laughs> Sometimes it's really important to understand what happened. Um, and then I, I, I started to, uh, trying to understand what the, the values we can extract from this, this kind of data. And then <laughs> it's how basically my interest in on, on HCI got a, a really, um, uh, well, a space inside the, the, the community as well. And I also noticed that there was this, um, let's say this gap on bringing more um, state of the art of data analysis to some some areas of HCI. So that that's uh, uh, where I, I thought that I could contribute somehow, like bringing this data analysis mindset to this specific uh, uh, realm of HCI. So. Uh, in short, yeah, that's how no, I got interested. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing uh, uh, that, that yeah. story. I'm really interested in, in getting into sort of data and what you talk about, you know, when you talk about things like what happens in between the clicks, right? Because, you know, a lot of people when they, you know, they might, you know, if they're into sort of like analysis of sort of interaction, they, the immediately thing you, you think about is like clicks per, you know, things that people click on, how, you know, how of, of all the things they see, how many of the, like, you know, which one do they pick to click on and, and things like that. So clicks um, is, and of course that's usually a sort of stat used in advertising pricing and stuff like that on the web. So that's why people would think about, about clicks. Um, uh, but before we do that, actually, I've got um, one of the sort of pleasures of this podcast and, you know, you know, sort of, you know, being part of lean pub is that we have authors from all around the world who have all these different experiences. And I wanted to ask you specifically about what, um, how how PhDs work in Brazil? I mean, to, if, if assuming there's a kind of general kind of way they work, right? Because you know it can be very different in the UK from the United States and Canada, for example. And I'm looking at your uh, your LinkedIn profile here, and I can see that your your PhD is 2009 to 2012, and that's more of a UK style timeline than an American one, which might be like six or seven years or something like that. So I was wondering if you could just yeah explain a little bit about you know are you all but dissertation from day one? Are you expected to teach and take classes when you do a PhD? Things just how, how does it work? Sure. Uh, well, um, I, I didn't mention that how I transit, uh, how was my transition from the work that I was doing in the newspaper at the Folha de São Paulo, from uh, 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 from de São Paulo to academia and then research at IBM. Um, some point when I was like uh, doing this uh, uh, research when I was undergrad uh, undergrad student. I got super interested on doing research. And then um, at that time I decided to um, go all in <laughs> and did the academia, right? And this is one uh, of the possibilities, right? So I um, I was, uh, I applied to, to this position uh, uh, at uh, University of Campinas, Unicamp, and then I, uh, join a project that was running under uh, supervision of uh, Professor Cecilia Baranauskas. And then uh, there was a scholarship for me there. And I was able to um, uh, work and study full-time there uh, over the next years. So um, this is one uh, of the 
ways of engaging with uh, uh, research, I would say, so uh, receiving scholarships. Um, over the years, back in Brazil, when people uh, um, are like in this um, full-time uh, dedication, uh, it is it, it's expected uh, for a, a good time for a master uh, uh, master's project is kind of two to three years, and for PhDs, the regular time is like four year uh, period for for the whole thing. And I would say for the PhD, usually um, when you are doing that, we can we we need to um, like conclude uh, uh, have some credits. And then okay. the, the, the PhD uh, thesis. Um, that is somewhat half and half. So if you have four years, usually you you keep your two first years to uh, conclude all the credits and then uh, to, to focus on the dissertation. Um, sometimes people do start, uh, uh, if they have already a really good idea of a project and like it's a fit for the supervisor, then can be thesis from the day one, right? Especially if you are coming already with some background on the area from the master uh, degrees, then it helps a lot. So, and for instance, my case, it was uh, uh, the next step, the PhD was the next step over my master's project. So it was, I had a backlog of publications, I had a backlog of ideas. So it was more in the sense of getting uh, um, deeper on that subject right so that is one uh, um way and, and uh to to your point on the the period i decided that if i was doing like full time i was do as fast as i can because i wanted uh, to to um apply that I, I wanted to to finish as fast as i i could and uh, at the time I had this scholarship that was for three years and then was also another, uh, let's say, good motivator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks very much for that. That's interesting. So for anyone, for anyone sort of not familiar with sort of the, you know, the world of PhDs, there, there, there are, it might be surprising or it might make sense, but some people do actually sort of start the PhD without necessarily having a, a very clear idea of what they want to work on. And that can be in in any subject, right? Um, uh, but I can say, like you know, from my own experience, having gone in with a for my own doctorate with a very clear idea of what I wanted to do, like you, you will you will probably finish a, a lot faster um, if, if if you sort of like have have a sort of worked out idea and plan. But of course, that involves a lot of work to get there. So you kind of all you've kind of front loaded it before you start the, start the PhD if you if you're in that in a, like if you've done that kind of thing already. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so that was really interesting. And, you know, and, you know, like, yeah, as I said, you know, if, if your scholarship runs out after three years, that's a great incentive to, to finish. Um, because as a student, you're probably not living, living the high life anyway. Um, uh, and so, uh, yeah, would you mind actually talking a little bit? I know it's been 10 years, but would you mind talking a little bit about what your PhD thesis was about? Sure. Um, uh, I mentioned about uh, finding um, the area of usability and, and accessibility, I, I really like to understand ways that we could like do user interaction to be as simple as possible and to be efficient, to be effective, uh, and people feel satisfied after using that. To, uh, and um, I started uh, looking into some uh, uh, papers and books around the this, this subject, and um, when I started 
uh, thinking about master project. Uh, in fact, the thing that I thought at the beginning ended up to as being the whole thing, like my master and PhD, because what I wanted to do at the very beginning was too big to fit in a, in a master's project. And I started to uh, explore uh, piece by piece, right? And then uh, the first thing I was uh, 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 like concerned about was that we always need to have this kind of data super well structured to analyze uh, uh, what happened and we need to have clicks and this kind of analysis. And I was thinking about, okay, but what if we start analyzing everything, like everything, instead of using one type of event, like click, we have tens of events triggered while we interact with computers and we can customize we can trigger more events we can have well, nowadays we have more uh, devices that trigger even more events um what if uh, i could analyze all those events and think about how people interact different ways and and then when i started to to research about this topic i i really found that uh, universal design was the philosophy I would like to to follow because it is something that opens your mind to so many different possibilities. And uh, with the the help uh, uh, from Professor uh, Bartonaskas, I was super intrigued about the possibilities that universal design uh, and also what universal design brings to you when you're thinking about possibilities because usually we say okay let's analyze clicks but um does everyone use mouse what about blind people uh then you start thinking okay ah, but we we can analyze if uh, um users did this this and that or if they downloaded something but what about places that the connectivity is not so good so it, it, we can even analyze the speed that the images are being downloaded because sometimes we can see that things are not working properly because just because the 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 internet connection and then i started to see that there was this whole range of possibilities of analyzing this really rich data set about how things actually happened um and when we, for instance, when I started to to uh, research about uh, usability, there's this whole idea that when we freeze, we don't know what to do when we are looking at a, a, a user interface. Um, you're trying to make sense of that. What should I do? Where can I go? And then um, even the lack of interaction is an interesting information that you can consider. Like, right, if you people are moving and then suddenly they change the speed they're using the mouse or they suddenly change the way that the speed they are typing. So what what that uh, does that mean if you start analyzing the nuances of this information and uh, the possibilities of combining everything? Like, okay, and, and my first idea was uh, how can I um, differentiate or analyze differences between when people that is using the mouse, for instance, uh, navigating through a, a newspaper website or uh, an e-commerce, like, okay, I just entered and I want to go to this link. It's just to move the mouse over the 2D screen. But for people that are using screen readers, and screen readers are those 
uh, uh, systems that read the content behind the the the, the curtains, right? We have um, structural and textual information, and the screen readers usually they bring this information for uh, people that cannot see, or even people that use uh, um, screen readers as an additional uh, modality to also hear what is uh, in the screen. And if uh, we have, let's say, a blind people using the same uh, web page I mentioned before, uh, probably they will have to tab over the links, uh, navigate through some structure. So instead of reaching, uh, starting from A to and going to B, like in one straight line in a few seconds, probably this other person will have to traverse like multiple links until uh, they reach the same point. So we have different ways of, of doing that. And uh, um, I thought about uh, creating a system that could first identify those differences. And, and the second aspect, how can I improve the, the, the UI, the user interface for everybody? Like to make the, these accessible to the most extent possible. And that, that's where uh, universal design uh, comes into place because it's the idea that you shouldn't create one specific solution for each specific group of people based on their abilities. You should create one that tries to bring everybody to the same level, right? It brings to, to uh, um, it allows everyone to use the same way. And the classic example is the, the supermarket automatic door, right? When you're entering the sensor uh, doesn't know if you're carrying a baby, if you're using a wheelchair, if you're using a, 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 a white can, uh, uh, if you're blind, if you're, uh, you know, if you're walking, um, you just enter and the sensors identifies you and the doors uh, open after that. That's the, that's the classic example usually gave, usually, uh, uh, gave when we talk about universal design. But if, when you're talking about computers, we need to think about the modalities and how people um, might, let's um, uh, say, uh, decode that information, right? So we can think about, okay, if I'm providing this information in a textual uh, way, is it uh, well-structured to the point that a screen reader can access that and decode that for people that cannot see, for people that cannot see? And um, in also sign language. Is there a way to convert that textual information in English or in Portuguese, for instance, to the sign language of that region? Um, and when you start to think about all of these possibilities, then uh, um, I, I really got interested in doing something around that. And after researching even more, I also uh, um, changed a bit the way of looking at this uh, problem because at the beginning, I was like everybody, too much focused on disabilities, on types of disabilities. But if you start um, paying attention to the word around, uh, you see that it's not so much about the disability because if you think about one specific type of disability, let's say uh, blindness, um, well, I need to use glasses because I cannot see in a certain uh, uh, distance. Um, and if 
we we see lots of uh, technologies and lots of research uh, projects dealing with one type of accessibility or, or one type of disability and in um, like a uh, um, discrete way and, or if you either you have or you don't have but in the real world it's not this way when we get older we'll have multiple types of disabilities or limitations that is in this continue that are in this continue uh, from a mild to severe or something uh, uh, um, and uh, this just to talk about this uh, discrete discrete versus continuum way of looking at different abilities but also the context of views because well um, right if we are, let's say, listening to music, and then uh, our cell phone just rings. Our uh, uh, my my uh, uh, hearing capabilities are not to, available to that uh, channel, to that modality. So accessibility goes beyond the disability, and is more uh, uh, related to the context of use. Right? If the modality, if that specific. Um, situation, I can use all my capabilities. Because when we start talking about accessibility, we I, I've heard that a couple of times, but oh, we are talking only about 5% of the population or even 10%, 12%. And when we talk about universal design, now we are talking about everybody because it is situational. It's not something that you, either you have or you don't have. It depends on the situation. So if you see a ramp, Oh, but you're you're not uh, in in a sidewalk. Well, if you don't use a wheelchair, you think that is not for you. But if you're uh, carrying your baby in a stroller, then it's for you as well. If you're carrying a, a, a supermarket cart or something, you can use that. So it's it's a way of changing your mindset to see all of these possibilities. And I try to apply that in this specific area of capturing data. And trying to see, okay, what are these possibilities? These multiple flows I mentioned before. We have groups of people that go from A to B really fast, really quick in a few steps. But there's this other group that goes this all all this uh, challenging way with lots of steps to reach the same point B. What can we do? And uh, to summarize, yeah. <laughs> my project was like uh, uh, on getting this data, understanding or trying to identify these problems or these barriers. And uh, with a way of applying these rules, we could apply small adjustments to the UI and identify if that improved or not. So basically, cluster groups of people based on the way they interact, not by the way that uh, by uh, uh, disabilities, because, uh, for instance, I don't use mouse, but I use keyboard a lot. And um, when uh, assistive technology that benefits uh, blind uh, users will also ben ben benefit people that use keyboard a lot. We will have lots of way of interacting and shortcuts and so on. So that was the first way uh, uh, thing that I brought, like analyzing the data based on interaction, not on the the capabilities, right? And then if I have these multiple possibilities, uh, ones that are um, faster, others that took loops and, and some um, different paths. How can I improve those UIs to get uh, uh, to help these people to get 
uh, uh, the same point in fewer steps. And then uh, uh, there was the, the the tool basically had a few rules, and there was this this way of creating these adjust uh, these adjustments. And based on these clusters, uh, first the system identifies uh, what are the adjustments that can be applied to that cluster, and then divides each cluster in a experimental and the control group, and then applies and analyzes in the next visits uh, how. Uh, uh, and if that uh, path was improved or not. So uh, that's the whole story behind the system, but uh, it tries to make one simple thing that is to get this the number of actions as short as possible for everybody. But there's this whole uh, uh, tooling aspect done under the hood that involves capturing data in a lightweight uh, manner, uh, transferring to somewhere else, uh, also to identify these multiple paths and how people are interacting with um, uh, the UI, uh, performing this clusterization of this kind of data sets, and then uh, applying this, uh, um, identifying properly what are the adjustments that should be applied to this, this and that. So the adjustments are supposed to be small uh, improvements or changes. We only know if it improved or not in the subsequent visits. But imagine that you have a small uh, link on a certain page that some people can, like let's say a logout link. Some people can easily move the mouse over and then click and log out. So we have this path, this set of short set of actions. But we have also people that try to click on that link, and the link is so small for that specific group that they go, uh, uh, they have the mouse to uh, hover out the the um, to to go out the, the this element. They click outside, and then they click move over hover over the 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 link again, and then click. So we have an additional click. We have click on a non-clickable area. So these are reach. Uh, uh, information we can use. And for instance, one adjustment for this specific situation could be try increasing in 10% the size of this link. And in the next visit, we analyze the whole set. Okay, for this next visit, did it improve or not? If not, we can increase again. Or just you can forget that specific rule because it's not working. So uh, just forget. But the whole idea was to apply these small adjustments and see if that improved or not uh, the, the UI. Thanks very much for that. It's it's interesting. You, you captured sort of a lot of the, the range of the kind of, uh, you know, uh, sort of things that people who were involved in human computer action, who human computer action have to get involved with, which includes, you know, sort of like really thinking through things at a deep level about what human computer interaction is. Right. And so, like, I love when you when you mentioned um, it's situational. Um, you reminded me of a very specific image, actually, of a, I interviewed a, an, a LeanPub author, and she had been using our, um, on her laptop, she'd been using our in-browser editor writing mode, right? So you write in the browser, but she'd recently had a baby. And so now she was one-handed. Um, and, and you know, when you mentioned the sort of ramp, I mean, a lot of people think, oh, that's that's for you know, like, and it's sort of like you, you did invoke there's sometimes people get kind of sarcastic or even negative about it. They'll be like, why are you designing this whole thing for 5% of the population? And it's like, mm -hmm. well, there's, what if, what if someone's got a cart of groceries? What if they, that they're pulling behind them? What if, what if they've had a baby and now they've got a, you know, a, a stroller or something like that? 
Um, uh, and there's all kinds of other things. What if, what if they've, you know, kind of been injured, you know, and, and steps are suddenly difficult. Um, you know, what if you, what if you break your hand all of a sudden one handed kind of things and, you know, and maybe it's your mouse hand that you've, you've lost temporarily, um, things like that. And so being able to design to all of these things, um, uh, isn't isn't just for sort of like you know it, it's much more complex and sort of as you say there's sort of universal than just there's there's specific types of people who are sort of coherently self-contained problem who have coherently self-contained problems um and you need to design something for 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 every every case if you can but that reminds me of something i was looking at i think i think it's a relatively recent paper that you you worked on about uh computer anxiety and so it's interesting you talk about what happens in between the clicks you know all, all that kind of stuff but there's actually even before there's this there's this human computer interaction problem that happens even before people get to the computer which is they're anxious about interacting with computers um and i remember i remember once um having a very striking example of that i was at i'd moved to a new place and i was at the post office and i was doing something and there was a guy in front of me who um, was my age who was getting a post office box um and uh the 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 employee at the post office asked him for his email address and he said oh i never learned computers um and it was just so striking because like to me i take it for granted that i use computers all the time for everything they don't they don't fright they don't they don't usually frighten me too much i'm not usually not too intimidated by them but there are a lot and like not to be too presumptuous about this guy but like you know there are a lot of people for whom like the computer is this like just the, a big scary thing i remember a, a bbc tech writer years ago wrote about how like he didn't dare tell his mom that her remote control for her television was actually a computer because if he told her she'd stop using it um uh but um uh, just just generally speaking on computer anxiety can you talk a little bit about what what that what that the, the, the sort of like i guess sort of scholarly or kind of scientific approach to what that really is and what you can do to address it sure uh well uh, it, computer anxiety um i got interested about that uh, specific um topic when i started uh, trying to to map all the barriers people face and specifically this uh, um this richer context related to the interaction. And as I mentioned, when we talk about barriers, some, most of the time we are focused on, on the interaction itself, how people, while people are interacting. And uh, this, the, when I started reading about computer anxiety, I got interested because it's a barrier that may occur before the actual interaction. So <laughs> people uh, like feel that they're going to do something wrong, right? They feel that, okay, it's not going to happen. And um, this this whole idea that it's not going to work, uh, it's going to break, I look stupid using that, this brings a so heavy burden to these people that they start the interaction with uh, lots of, of uh, 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 preconceived ideas, right? And uh, what liter literature says is that usually people that feel this way, they... Um, they didn't have the opportunity to interact with the computers in a meaningful way. And, and I mean, uh, usually they had their first experience in a bad way. They have like, uh, uh, it was a computer in a, let's say, a, a shared computer. And uh, they were like 
afraid of breaking or deleting something or looking stupid when using or making mistakes. And usually the, this differentiation is something that uh, pops up when we are discussing because usually people say, oh, but uh, I have my, uh, uh, my grandson uh, doesn't care or he does a lot of stuff. And usually um, kids do because they are, aren't afraid of breaking stuff. Right, and this is the the first uh, barrier that usually we have. Like, okay, I'm, uh, am I doing this right way? Am I going to break something? Um, and this fear of also looking stupid in front of others, it's something that uh, ends up holding people back because um, they are afraid of uh, showing up that they don't know, and this. Uh, just just makes things uh, uh, worse and worse, right? Uh, and we also try to study the role of mobile phones on that uh, because usually uh, people, if you have your smartphone, your mobile phone, you are comfortable in doing things and you're the only people seeing what you're doing. So that is something, is an interesting aspect of the role of smartphones for people with computer anxieties, they can explore stuff. And that, that it's something that um, we, we saw in the literature as well. And in this specific research, we, um, and I am saying we because it is part of a PhD project I'm supervising uh, from a university of, um, the Federal University of ABC in Brazil. I'm a, a collaborator there. Uh, and I'm supervising this uh, PhD project. And the idea is to use the data set I mentioned before. So tens of events that we can capture and um, see if and how we can simplify user interface for this uh, 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 population. Because with, as time passes and with um, technical uh, um, education or with experience, we can reduce this kind of anxiety. And this is, is, is also uh, present in the literature because, but what if we can bring meaningful first experiences for this group of people and to make a user interface as simple as possible for them? So if we have lots of distractors and we can easily see that lots of uh, applications and uh, websites and systems we have nowadays, they have so many distractors like advertisement, things moving around. And these um, these kinds of things uh, end up calling attention to different things that are not related to the main task, right? Or to the things that people want to do. And um, we are trying to use this data set to identify first, what is the task people are performing? And second, is there anything that I can remove from the UI right now for this specific task, for this specific people? And then we are trying to do this automatically. So basically using this kind of data, trying to have multiple ways of um, identify this, these distractors. And we started using like eye tracker to see how people interact with uh, 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 eye gazes around the UI for a specific reduced set of tasks. And we also thought that, well, 
having an eye tracker on every single, um, let's say, personal computer is not feasible for some populations, for instance, in Brazil. And then what if we could use a more um, uh, common data set, like mouse movements, as a proxy to gaze interaction? And then we are trying to identify these distractors and it, this is only part of the whole challenge of first identifying the task and then the distractors and then simplifying when it makes sense. But um, I think that's it. This is, is this whole pipeline of identifying first people that have these higher, higher levels of computer anxiety, then identifying the task and then identifying um, what are the distractors for them and then trying to simplify the UI for that specific person performing that specific task. So, <laughs> yeah, that's 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 so fascinating. I mean, in, in the end of the whole, but we'll actually talk a little bit probably about data and how, and how you actually gather it, right? Because you said you know you've got to have when we're talking about like eye, eye movements and stuff like that. Well, there's got to be something looking at it, and there's probably there's hopefully someone who opted in to agree to have their eye movements tracked and stuff like that. But which is a super sensitive thing in all all this kind of analysis. But I just wanted to point out that like you know in addition to um computer anxiety and I, I'm, I'm now going to just make up my own term there's there's computer hostility um uh and um uh that's that's sort of like getting a little bit a little bit you know kind of going away now but um uh it reminds me of a very specific thing that happened in kind of the corporate world which was that one of the reasons if, if anyone remembers the old blackberries which were these mobile phone mobile phones um but mobile computing devices that had a little physical keypad on them and one of the reasons they became just so explosively popular in the business world was that there's a certain kind of ex business executive culture in which typing on a keyboard is seen as a lower status activity. That's the kind of thing a, a worker does, not the kind of thing a boss does. And the idea that you even knew how to kind of type for people, of, I'm going to be generalizing negatively here, but for people of a certain generation, was actually kind of like a marker of lower status. Um, and so when finally people could didn't have to sit at a keyboard and type like a typist, and they could actually just sort of do things on their on, with their thumbs, um, uh, that type of interaction unlocked all this amazing technology that these executives could finally use in a kind of culturally acceptable way. Uh, and it's amazing. So in addition to computer hostility, there's basically a kind of whole political dimension to, to this kind of stuff. And that can come up. There's like, you know, with sort of status symbols and and things like that. But again, but again, in particular, there's this like once the kind of work that people do on human computer interaction can actually unlock um, uh you, you like powers for people in but it in but in many ways and it's, it's sort of it's not always as sort of as sort of technical as it were of, of of sort of gathering data but there can be these high level kind of things that happen which make it such a fascinating field um but just moving moving on on that topic so uh your book is called interaction data analytics uh, so let's sort of get into the, the heart of this here so um before we start ask, talking specifically about how you get the data um i was wondering if you could talk about um what interaction logs are sure uh the um i mentioned about this whole idea that that people have about focusing too much on clicks right and then um after researching about this subject i started seeing that there's so many uh possibilities in this uh, um let's say in a log that you can have more information. And when I started 
researching about uh, uh, tools and, and, and different analytic, analytics um, platforms that usually back in the 90s and early uh, 2000s, we had like analysis of server logs. And at that time, was uh, that was the uh, uh, data source people used on research and, and so on, because it is the natural uh, product of uh, web servers working. So we have everything there. But when you start um, trying to, to try to get more information about how people actually use that, then this kind of data source is not that useful because again, it has the page views or the the uh, uh, downloaded pages or the requests, uh, more specifically saying. So we don't know what happened between these requests. We can have requests that are triggered automatically. Nowadays, we have screens that triggers lots of requests, right? And, um, and then I started uh, looking into these possibilities of kind of using all available events, uh, combining them, creating new events, um, and then about thinking, oh, what if I have like an additional uh, sensor? If I had like a sensor that could detect how much pressure I put in a touch screen? What if I had like a sensor that could detect my um, skin conductance to identify events of um, frustration? Uh, what if uh, we had like an eye tracking that I could detect my uh, pupil dilation or something, right? Then we have lots of things that we can capture. Uh, we have the so famous uh, click that it's kind of an explicit way of uh, um, doing something, right? And uh, but we have lots of other types of information that we can um, capture and have really interesting uh, uh, insights from that. So we have uh, the way that you move the mouse, the way, and recently what we. Um, saw that is interesting also is the uh, interval that you stop over a link before clicking on it. It's an interesting uh, uh, predictor for some of the, the machine learning models we are creating um, or any sort of interesting attribute to be more technically, uh, uh, to be technically correct. Um, so, after looking around of, of this range of possibilities, I saw that, okay, it, it's it's beyond only looking to certain kinds of information. And um, when I started trying to, to look around a term, <laughs> I didn't find the term that could en encompasses everything. And then I said, okay, logs, we use logs, server logs, logs from everybody, every, every uh, uh, from multiple systems. But to have this specifically um, analysis of interaction, then we should have something that uh, um, could cover this whole variety of, of data. And then we started discussing, okay, we have any kind of data that we can get that is a result 
from the interaction we are calling interaction uh, uh, data and if we capture a bunch of, <laughs> of these we were calling interaction log because um again after interacting with systems we uh, um and we are trying to cover really the whole variety because if we talk about iot for instance we have information of people entering and leaving let's say a museum um and this way of looking to technology actually uh, gave birth to lots of patents I have uh, in IBM because it is a way of analyzing how people interact with with technologies and and try to see um, okay what if I could I let's say uh, collect data of how people interact with an environment and the newcomer comes into this this environment and uh, they don't know how to interact with people and with the environment. Uh, what if I use all the possibilities and how people usually interact to inform this this new uh, this newcomer to this environment? So it would be like a way of um, presenting um, the social protocols around that specific environment for a newcomer. So we can think about a museum. We can think about um, this this situation like in a in an airport or in a smart city or uh, in transit, right? If you're driving uh, here in New York or in Sao Paulo, you'll see different behaviors. Some of them are acceptable. Some of them are not. So, <laughs> uh, and we could use like logs from cars. Like how do you sign when you are changing lanes? How, um, uh, 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 how, you behave using uh, lights when you dim, when you you keep your, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's this whole range of possibilities of getting this uh, uh, specific piece of data of how people interact with with systems. Yeah, that's super interesting. One thing you one thing you touched on there was um the you you said explicit explicit interaction and then and then the the another you inter you introduce these terms at the beginning beginning of the book and then there's this term imp, implicit interaction. Explicit interaction is kind of what you consciously choose to do more or less, right? Like I'm gonna move the mouse over there and I'm gonna click on that button and I'm gonna buy that whatever or or go to mm -hmm. that link. Um, and then implicit interaction is like what you were talking about, like you know like involuntary eye movements um or uh or and and um kind of you know skin conduction or something like that where you can sort of sense people's you know anxieties or, or you know even you can even imagine like sort of heart rates or something like that yeah. right um yeah. uh which is which is really interesting and it's it's interesting too that you mentioned you know sort of like introducing people to things um that reminded me i think i think the opening of super mario brothers is sort of famous in in the gaming world for like in the first minute you kind of have to survive the first minute you kind of have to learn everything you're going to need to know and they very they very consciously designed the beginning of the game that way but you know when it comes to museums for example you know when you when you walk in and sort of know walking in and even knowing what to do or where to go is actually part of the hopefully part of the design of of what's of what's happened there and and so these kinds of interaction logs are sort of useful not only for websites <laughs> but for yeah. but for all kinds of all all kinds of different things and the same kind of principles um apply uh and yeah I, I, you mentioned patents um so we did, we haven't really talked too much about you know at all about your your work for for IBM uh but if i mean people are interested you know what a master inventor is and and sort of this is in general what what kind of work do you do for have you been doing for them for the last 10 years yeah well IBM is known for one of the companies that that um, like is in the, 
top of uh, uh, companies with more uh, patents than the USPTO. Um, yeah, IBM was the leader for 29 years uh, in a row in this rank of, of companies patenting technologies. And it's it's part of the, the culture in the company. And uh, when I started um, learning about that, I, I got super interested in the... I. I had with with a few colleagues and friends like some of the most incredible brainstormings I had in the whole life, my whole life, like thinking about new technologies, how to solve problems with people from different backgrounds, uh, bringing different uh, uh, contributions to the table, and um, this is basically part of our. Uh, daily work at IBM Research and and also in another uh, business units, but I think it I specifically inside IBM Research is is really um, present, uh, so to say, for for my at least based on my experience. Um, and well, as soon as as I uh, started this whole uh, uh, journey on on patenting and and understanding what a patent is and how to create a patent, how a patent differs from a paper, and how and all all this stuff. And um, I I, uh, uh, I invited a mentor, <laughs> one people the uh, uh, friend that was already a master inventor at the time, and um, he he taught me a lot about the process about doing patent about creating preparing the documentation, and a few years later I was uh, nominated as master inventor. Master inventor is a, an internal title at IBM, and it is a Temporary, temporary one because it it, it takes it, it lasts for uh, three years. So basically, you need to keep up <laughs> okay. uh, inventing to to maintain the title, so to say. Um, and uh, um, that's basically what what it means. But also as part of the, the this title, the master inventor title, is that you're supposed to help people that uh, want to start patenting or start exploring this these possibilities. So uh, as a master inventor, uh, we are encouraged to um, mentor uh, people interested in patenting, patenting and also interested uh, in, in the whole process uh, of innovation uh, and how it connects with the IBM's business and, and um how it connects with the role that our labs have in, in inside IBM Research. So it, it's it's interesting to connect with connect with this way of impacting the um, IBM's patent portfolio. And well, I really like this uh, uh, this part of my my of my job because uh, well, it's it's super challenging and and super. Um, I'd say that when when we have a patent granted, it's it's really interesting because we have a whole process inside IBM that we have boards that assess the, the idea and uh, we have this approval internally and the whole document preparation and then it's submitted to USPTO, which is the the the, the uh, trademark and uh, patent office um, here in the US, and then. There's this another assessment uh, in the USPTO. So when you have an idea, something that you created with your colleagues and friends, and passes this whole uh, uh, workflow, and at the end uh, there's an expert on patents that says, "Okay, 
this is really new. This this has something new and it, it is worth a patent and it's worth uh, uh, to be granted. So uh, it's really, um, how, how should I say? It's, it's uh, um, revigorating. <laughs> You'll see that some, something that you, you, you came up uh, was uh, uh, passed through this whole uh, um, workflow and was um, assessed as a valuable stuff, right? <laughs> and it's new. And that, that's really, really cool when it happens. Yeah, that's really, that sounds, it sounds like such an interesting job. I mean, you know, you get to work with all these really smart people. You get to sort of write papers and sort of work on cutting edge, not just technologies, but ideas and things like that. And for anyone listening who's, who hasn't been through it before, I've been sort of, in, in a way, I was part of a project that um, uh, ended up getting a, a U.S. patent. And, and in the end, you sort of submit your ideas uh, to some people at the U.S. Trademark and Patent Office who, who decide uh, whether, whether it really is a new and unique thing. Um, and that's got to be a kind of interesting job, of course, as well. But but to get that validation that you really have done something new in the world um, uh, is it must must be really exciting. Um, I did I did mention earlier that we would I, I would ask um, uh, about actually how you you go about in sort of let's say your ordinary human computer computer interaction experimentation. How do you actually get data? So do you do you is it is it um, do you get a group of volunteers and sort of set them up in like a, a lab in front of a bunch of computers where they're they've got their heart monitor or their something on their finger or something like that to you know how how does that actually work? Well, it, it can be done in different ways. We can have um, this uh, local um, uh, user session, as you mentioned, when we have like um, uh, this whole uh, uh, process that we we must do in research, like. Uh, uh, going to um, an IRB board to have the the, the project assessed, and then um, we need to to present a consent form and make sure that people understand that they are participating uh, in, in a study. Um, and then for for uh, uh, specifically for this one that you mentioned about computer anxiety, um, that that's how it was done. Basically, we and for this one around computer anxiety, we. Uh, partnered with um, uh, with a community center in, in downtown Sao Paulo uh, that um, supports um, older adults in, in that area. So they, they offer multiple services to older, older adults. And we um, uh, ran this partnership uh, with this, uh, uh, and we, I mean, uh, uh, my PhD uh, uh, student and um the the this um, center uh, and we have to to communicate with, to to the participants and make sure that they understand what is the the study about and what are the the data that we are collecting and well as the the we do by the book like and explain things and and if they uh, uh, they are. Uh, they can interrupt their participation anytime. So we go all the the we follow the, the usually the the we follow the standard protocols for doing that, right? Um, this for local studies, we can also do like um, remote studies. And usually, when we talk about scale and we want to know more about information, then um, 
usually we inform this and require consent for capturing a certain uh, types of data. Um, nowadays, we have uh, regulations for cookies, for instance, and how to, to explain that, what kind of information, what's your cookie policy, what are the goals of using that information. Um, and, and for the research uh, I mentioned before related to uh, interaction uh, data analytics, um, usually we present that, we inform also the uh, types of data we are capturing, how we're going to use that. Um, and this is done only under uh, user's consent. So that that's, I'd say that that is the big difference from one uh, uh, to the other context. Um, and the hard thing is that when you do, when we do local studies, usually we have, we're not able to have like hundreds or thousands of sessions due to a uh, uh, space, time, money limitations uh, in, in research. As a gen, uh, in general, and but for these local studies, we ended up we end up having really rich information about the interaction and about how people felt during that specific interaction. We get opinion. We get we see how they uh, change their their uh, facial expressions while interacting with the the system we are studying. Um, but on the other hand, when we go to scale, we have more data. Uh, of how multiple people used that specific uh, uh, system we are evaluating, but then we miss something of that <laughs> detail that we have when we are doing uh, um, in-person uh, uh, sessions. So it's it's a balance that usually we try to 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 have, and depends on on the system we are creating. Uh, it depends also the way that you recruit participants. Voluntary sometimes you need to have a specific a, a group of participants with certain characteristics to represent somehow the population that you want to uh, 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 that system to be meaningful and easy to use. So it's it's a, a, a tricky thing to 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 do and to to design this kind of experiment. But yeah, in some, this is the difference. In one situation, we need to explain, we follow the protocols um, and we have this uh, uh, kind of partnership and, and uh, multiple ways of recruiting participants and also doing everything under uh, uh, the consent. And when we do like remote uh, at scale studies, we need to inform people that we are capturing certain types of data. What are we going to do with that specific type of data and how they can uh, like opt out. For instance, the study, we need to get um, a contact person uh, for that specific study, so, so on and so forth. Speaking of uh, reaching the right population, I did mention your book, Interaction Data Analytics, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, um, I know we've covered a lot of the topics that are in there, but um, uh, obviously, but um, I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit about who the book is for. Yeah, I I mentioned about this um, kind of gap that uh, uh, I, I saw between using state-of-the-art, uh, let's say, algorithms and techniques of data analysis, and sometimes we and and how to design experiments to capture certain uh, nuances and, and certain details of how people interact with systems. So first, I I thought about kind of summarizing and how I could help people in the same uh, um, with the same interest and um, 
and also uh, try to get some structure because as i mentioned i'm i'm researching about this subject for for uh, some time and uh when i interact with people that uh, are interested in this in this subject and then uh they ask for references and i usually send a couple of of papers that i uh um uh, 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 um, did write with uh, uh, colleagues or other papers I used as as reference, and usually they have to kind of connect everything. Uh, I did uh, teach a couple of uh, courses around uh, uh, interaction, the analysis, and I thought of, after a, a couple of these uh, courses, I I thought about having this collection or this uh, thing from uh, start to finish talking about how to think about uh, universal design as I mentioned before how to think how to plan the data capture and how to collect the data how to analyze and visualize and and these steps started th th uh, this idea of okay what if I read a book about that, like combining everything uh, uh, I did in these uh, years and um, leveraging the structure of the courses I, I already uh, taught. So it was like this idea of having something that could tell this, this story for people interested in this specific aspect, like bridging uh, let's say UX <laughs> to data science. So that how how can we uh, do that uh, uh, that uh, connection, right? How can we think about user tests to capture interesting data and get that data uh, and transform somehow in a complex structure like a graph or a, a table with certain metrics I'm interested in, and then uh, visualizing. Um, uh, thousands of people interacting with that specific technology or even creating a machine learning model to 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 do something interesting around that specific type of data so it, it, i thought as as being something that i could handle like or suggest to someone uh, asking me okay um i like that i like this this topic what do you recommend and, and then i i thought about the book as being this thing I would recommend. Okay, this is not the whole story, but it's a good start for you to have a sense of what can be done and how you can explore uh, this kind of data with different uh, tools and applications. So that, that in short is, is the the whole uh, um, motivation behind, behind the book. Yeah, well, thanks very much for that. It's a it's a great project and it's a great looking project. Um, and uh, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about a couple of details about it. So we we say for the last part of the interview, if the guest is is is, a, is an author, um, you know, so a little bit about their process. And the book is is currently marked as twenty five percent complete. Um, so you're writing it in progress. And I was just wondering if yep. you could talk a little bit about what what your approach is to that 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 uh, way of publishing. Are you do you have a plan? Like I'm going to work on it for five hours a week and publish one chapter a month or or something like that. Yeah, well, um, the the first time I've heard about LeanPub was in a, a conference, and um, it was like a uh, um, few few colleagues they uh, they were just uh, transitioning from a different publisher to LeanPub, and they uh, recommended. And then I um, I started. Uh, uh, 
really about the 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 the, the whole um, proposed and different way of of uh, publishing. And um, the first, um, I, I have uh, two books. This one you mentioned that it is interaction data analytics that it's in progress, and uh, it's twenty five percent because based on the material I have in mind and the courses I mentioned, I. I, I thought about it. I think it's it will be a book around 200 pages. So we have 50 pages. So that's okay. how I'm, okay. I'm planning that. Yeah. Um, and well, I have um, some material. Uh, the, the material I have nowadays is in Portuguese. So I'm trying to um, get some of the papers and results I, I uh, have recently uh, obtained recently in this more uh, fluid way along the book. Um, but, uh, back to, to, uh, uh, the, the point on publishing only pub is that I had this, uh, this project called Varal in the past that was about helping people to make, um, accessible and usable code, uh, for, for websites. Just, just, just so we're clear. Oh, uh, it, it's an acronym. So it's W A, uh, R A U. Okay. So it's uh, 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 and it's available uh, linkpubcom slash varal. Which oh, is I've got it right here. That's that's yeah. what that's what comes from. Okay. Go uh, go yeah. Ahead. And then this was about a project that there was this website uh, hosted at Unicamp. That time I was doing my transition from master uh, degree to the the PhD uh, degree, and then. Um, there was this website, it was the reference website with lots of code, lots of examples for people to do things daily basis. And one thing at that time that we identified is that when people start thinking about accessibility or usability, they um, sometimes leave at the end of the project and that never uh, comes uh, uh, up, right? We are always uh, late <laughs> coding stuff. So we thought about kind of digesting and creating lots of examples on how to, for instance, how to make accessible tables, accessible uh, structure and uh, uh, for, for multiple reasons. And then we have all of these examples in the website. And then, well, the the it was complicated to, to maintain the website due to some uh, security issues. Then I thought about, okay, I've heard about Limpa, what if, we just get all the examples of the codes and, and the, the theories we, we uh, have. It was not in a linear structure in the website. But then after discussing with the, the co-authors, we had at that time kind of suggested one sequence of reading that, like going from, the, some, from some aspects to other more complicated ones. And at that time, we also identified the need for a reference in Portuguese for this specific uh, uh, subject. Then I thought, okay, if I, I would try just converting the website as a book, and then was well, the first uh, uh, book uh, uh, we published on LeanPub. And then uh, with this one, um, uh, I had this. Uh, uh, I have this, these materials about the courses I taught and uh, the papers I've been uh, uh, publishing. And then I thought, okay. Probably I will not have time to uh, put my head on, on the, this project for uh, like the period I need, <laughs> but I have the whole plan 
I need to get it uh, um, progressing. And I was afraid of uh, losing the time of doing that. Right. <laughs> so, uh, um, because as I mentioned, I see value on that. I see that there's something happening in this specific area. And I was like, I, I felt that I need to do something when I start seeing some positions, some new positions, like on LinkedIn or in different other platforms talking about this connection. And so, okay, it's not only, uh, uh, so other people <laughs> are also seeing value on this uh, connection between uh, UX and data science. So I should do it and, and, and also um, do it in, in a way that I can um, make the best of the feedback that I can have and, and make it as a more iterative process than something that uh, it's a one-time thing. So um, that's how I uh, got to know <laughs> LeapHub. And then I had this this first uh, experience just transitioning from this website, this reference website uh, we had to the, the LeapHub. Uh, and then with this idea of this book, I, I, I had already an idea for the cover. I had an idea of the whole structure of the book and there was something missing. Then I said, okay, lots of things to do, lots of patents, lots of papers. So I need to get something done so that I can uh, iterate over that. So that was the, the idea uh, behind that. And, and again, I have the whole structure, the whole idea of the book and, and basically is to uh, convert some of the courses I I taught in a more fluid way with references, with lots of examples, uh, trying to structure in a more formal way with certain definitions, Try trying also to invite people to think more about uh, the definitions and things we have and to get, uh, uh, trying to make people more aware of these definitions and how the literature already treats that so they shouldn't uh, um, get too worried about hypes or influenced by hypes on certain terms. Uh, so so that's uh, the, the idea behind publishing it as uh, uh, on parts. So, um, and to answer your question, you mentioned about plans. I don't have a specific plan of uh, uh, concluding it or, or a specific deadline. But one thing that I want to do is like to have like these chunks, like 50 pages, for instance. So if I had to say I, 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 uh, I'm planning on having like uh, more three chunks of 50 pages added to, to this book um, uh, throughout this year and the next one. Um, so this is the, the, the I'd say the... The, the, the way that I see the project right now, but again, that, that's my, uh, it, it might change, but um, I'm planning on adding this uh, chunks of 50 pages and, and improving as well uh, uh, as possible and, and making the best of uh, the feedback that uh, community can, can also provide. Um, and well, I, I and, and it's funny because before um, starting this book, I had the idea, and after uh, piloting the short course I mentioned, one um, 
when when people's own person said, okay, you should write a book about it. <laughs> they said, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. I just don't have the the, the time to put everything together, but uh, I do, I'm doing this, and it, it's it's on my backlog. So and now I'm just trying to to bring this from the backlog to the in progress part of my Kanban and and uh, to have uh, uh, iterations over that. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that great story. That's so interesting to hear about the, both both of the projects um, and 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 how and how sort of Linkup turned out to be you know useful. I mean, in particular, of course, you know feedback and stuff like that, getting feedback while you're writing, but also kind of just getting something out there um, uh, is, is sort of a re- one of the reasons we exist, right? Is sort of like you know so that you don't have to have a completed book uh, and you don't have to sort of face the daunting task of writing a whole book before you get something out there and actually start playing a role in the conversation if it's if it's you know if just people are talking about these ideas and things like that get it out there be playing a role uh but it, but in sort of book format but before it's finished um so that's that's fantastic um uh and the last question i always ask on the podcast um if the guest is a lean pub author um is if there was one magical feature we could build for you or if there was one thing you really hate about lean pub um uh, that we could fix for you can you think of anything that you would ask us to do uh, well, as researcher, um, I use a, uh, Overleaf a lot for writing okay. papers in LaTeX. So um, some way of connecting Overleaf to LeanPub, I think that would be really interesting. Or maybe uh, some way of uh, um, integrating. Well, nowadays, what we uh, are doing is like we are using Overleaf to write it. And then um, uh, I generate the PDF and then upload a PDF. Uh, to to uh, LeanPub, um, and well, I like the idea of using uh, LaTeX because it create it, it generates um, PDFs with good accessibility level due to the the whole markup. Um, so this is one aspect that that uh, we we are interested also, and um, I think I think that's it because. Again, I, I'm using uh, Overleaf because lots of materials I have and, and the references, they are <laughs> also uh, uh, from uh, papers uh, I've written and, and um, materials I um, I have. So, and, and I, I like the way that some uh, documents look as well, not only under the hood, like the accessibility and the whole structure, uh, we are able to create really good looking documents. So that's why I, I like using uh, LaTeX and, and um, to, to answer your question. Uh, I think that connecting maybe uh, with Overleaf could be an interesting plus. But again, more for <laughs> researchers and and nerds like me that uh, like using Overleaf um, instead of other other um, I know, processing yeah. or. <laughs> yeah, no, great. Thanks very much for that feedback. That's really interesting, and it's definitely something I'll you know let 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 the team know about. Um, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's just so that's one of the things I really like about you know doing these interviews is finding like all the very specific things that that people from different you know. I mean, you know, like people from academic area, like, you know, uh, 
institutions might approach things one way. People from big companies might approach them another way. People who are just completely independent might approach them another way. And uh, yeah, I went and and I was I was actually very curious too because I saw you were using our upload writing mode, and then to see what tools you you were using to produce this this great looking book. So thanks very much for sharing that. Um, and yeah, thanks thanks also very much for taking the time to be out of your your afternoon today to be on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you. Thanks. For thanks. Having, I really really enjoyed. <laughs> thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.